The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. And Peter Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Hey everybody, this is UCI Conversations and I'm your host Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my guest today is UCI Associate Professor Dobbin Phoenix. Professor Phoenix's specialty is in political science. And today we're going to get to know him a little bit better and explore the explosive New York Times 1619 project, which was first published in August of 2019 and continues to grow and be discussed. If you're not aware of the 1619 project, I highly encourage you to stay tuned and listen. I have found it to be a very powerful examination of slavery, as well as the black contribution and experience over the last 400 years in this country. But before we get into that, welcome Professor Dobbin Phoenix. Welcome to UCI Conversations. How are you today? I'm holding up well in the midst of challenging times. <laughs> yes, <laughs> no truer words were spoken. Welcome to the show. Why don't you just tell us where you grew up and what you liked to do when you were a kid? Yeah, so I spent the first few years of my life in Hampton, Virginia, essentially at Langley Air Force Base. That's the southeast peninsula of the state. Uh, raised by my mom, who was active duty Air Force for 27 years, only child. I enjoyed things that only childs like doing, playing Nintendo Entertainment System, uh, <laughs> running outside, pretending I was uh, both the quarterback and the receiver in football. <laughs> Throwing an inflatable football high enough that I could run to the other side of the yard and catch it <laughs> myself. Yeah, and watching kind of a steady dose of television. Everything yeah. from uh, cartoons on Saturday mornings to shows that were formative from upbringing, like The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, to I was thinking about this the other day. I really liked the news magazine show 2020 back in the Hugh Downs, Bravo Walters days as a kid. In my middle school years, we moved out to Lompoc, California, Vandenberg Air Force Base. And so there I really got into sports, particularly basketball, consuming it, debating it with my friends, playing backyard football and basketball with them, and of course, sneaking some video games in as well. Excellent. Where did you go to college? I went to college back in Virginia, Christopher Newport University. It's a public liberal arts school, and it's really grown quite exponentially in the years since I went. But when I went, it was really small, just under 5,000 students total in the student body. And when did you start thinking about political science? So I started thinking about political science as early as my freshman year, specifically that freshman orientation 
weekend. To that point, I had been thinking about math and science courses in a track that would place me in the physical sciences, maybe something like engineering. But I thought as I was in orientation, you know, when I uh, see myself in the future as a quote unquote grown up, I saw myself involved in politics or civics or government in some way. And so I gravitated towards political science, frankly, because it had politics in the name. And I thought this can be the way in which I can explore those ideas that I seem to envision myself be grappling with as an adult. And so I, I got into the political science major. I was enjoying all the classes, thinking about government, not only the kind of functions and mechanisms of government, but thinking about kind of the theory of how we organize ourselves, how we organize ourselves as a society, and also think about the politics of home and the politics of the world around us. I loved it. And I just absorbed it all like a sponge. Um, many of my friends that were majors in poli-sci were interested in law school. And so I didn't really know what was next for me because I figured I wasn't interested in law school. And where'd you go to graduate school? I went to graduate school at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. How'd you like it? Well, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I actually really enjoyed overall uh, my experience at Michigan and my experience at Ann Arbor, but it certainly was not without its uh, difficulties and its growing pains, particularly moving from CNU as an undergrad, which was such a small school where, you know, I never felt that distant from anyone, be it a faculty member or an administrator. Uh, University of Michigan is a huge school, even at the graduate level, you know, the kind of graduate programming is larger than other comparable schools from the number of students within the cohorts to the number of resources available to you, which is great, but also can be potentially a bit overwhelming. So I think that was my big adjustment period to kind of be in this world in which everything was available to you, but you could feel like you had decision paralysis or, you know, not necessarily know who to turn to immediately for what. My learning curve in graduate school in taking fuller advantage of that resource-rich type program and institution was to understand how much effort I would have to make to build relationships, to demystify the process, and to make it feel a lot more intimate and a lot more manageable and navigable. So did I hear you correctly that it was somewhat intimidating, like how much work you had to put in to build relationships and and ultimately to succeed? Is that what you're saying? I think so. And maybe not even so much intimidating as just kind of a brand new concept to grasp, right? Like there were people that were ready to support me and guide me and explore potential collaborations with me, but I had to go to them. I had to initiate that. I had to envision or imagine what a productive partnership with a faculty member or with a fellow student could look like and then start to enact that and kind of take the lead. I couldn't simply work with my head down and wait for people to approach me with those kinds of opportunities and routes and avenues. And I think that was quite a bit of a learning curve for me because I tended to have a default posture of being very much within myself, if that makes sense, kind of, mm -hmm. yeah, a nation unto myself. So <laughs> understanding 
might need for some kind of very intentional reach out and nation building, uh, kind of really understanding that idea of it takes a village uh, to raise a PhD. Uh, once I kind of started to have a fuller understanding of that and my responsibility and educating myself in that village, the process of grad school became a lot less daunting. Mm. That's an excellent story. Do you remember a time when you felt like, oh, I'm over the hump. I'm starting to you know, come around the final turn. You know, when, oh, I, I, I think this is going to work out. Was it like that? I think so. I definitely had a moment in which I could see the light at the end of the tunnel and it didn't feel like an oncoming train. I was able to teach outside of the political science department in grad school. You know, we have our kind of teaching assistant gigs. And my partner at the time, now wife, encouraged me to seek out a teaching assistant gig in kind of another part of campus where you're not necessarily, you know, leading a discussion section of students in a regular lecture. You are working directly alongside a professor to train uh, UM undergrads who will themselves be peer facilitators for students discussing issues around structure and power, around identities, be those identities race, gender, socioeconomic status or religion, right? So very intensive work, working alongside the professor that I worked with. You know, we really got to know each other quite well because when you're doing that kind of work of training students to have those difficult conversations, you've got to be authentic and real and vulnerable in a way that you don't always need to be as a teacher. And so in being kind of vulnerable with that professor, Adrienne Dessel, she gave me a real encouragement and support to think about how I can be that honest and vulnerable with my own advisor within my department. I appreciated my advisor, but I certainly had him on a pedestal and was not sure if he would be able to relate to the challenges I was facing or the internal struggle. It wasn't about not being cut out for the work. It was about not fully seeing myself having a fit and having a place within the field and that was scary, right? To so have invested a number of years to that point in my program, to have kind of fulfilled my course requirements and reached candidacy so that the only thing for me to do now is the dissertation, but the only thing to do now is the dissertation. That was scary to think about, well, what is my contribution going to be to the field? And in what ways do I do not feel I belong within this field, let alone within my program? So with Agent Assel's encouragement and kind of push, I scheduled a meeting with my advisor, Vince Hutchings, and I thought to myself, I'm just going to be honest, maybe to a fault. And I was honest about how I just didn't feel as though I belonged. And to my utter surprise and relief and excitement, uh, Vince totally understood those feelings and he could relate uh, to those same feelings he had as a struggling graduate student in his political science program at UCLA back in the day. And so from that point forward, not only did I feel more seen and understood, but I had a game plan going forward. Okay, Vince, I will now be in your office every week or every other week, regardless of whether I have something good to show you or not. We're going to power through this together. I'm not going to try to endure this alone anymore. I'm going to get feedback from you as I keep trying to chip away, chip away, chip away at these kinds of promises or hints of ideas until the clear idea, the clear dissertation question 
that is not only a feasible question, but a question that motivates me until we identify that. So I can certainly think about that conversation being a real significant turning point. I really do credit you know, another person who would serve as a valuable mentor and friend for pushing me in that direction. Excuse me just for a moment, Professor, while I do a guest ID. If you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI political science professor, Davin Phoenix, and we're exploring his field of research, and actually, we were just discussing his PhD program. So where were you set, and then what did you reach outside of, Professor? Can you distinguish that a little bit for us? In terms of, well, did you say you know your wife encouraged you to move out, and didn't you say you kind of moved out of your comfort zone? You know, what, what was your, you know, it, was there sort of like, well, this is the traditional pathway, and this is what you do, but weren't you encouraged to move out of that? Yes, actually. So when my fellowship ended and I needed a teaching assistant gig, the most kind of conventional and obvious route would have been to simply seek. Uh, teaching assistant's job within the political science department or maybe mm. the four school of a policy, right? So, you know, being a TA for an introduction to American politics course or a mm. political behavior course. And my wife, Adriana, partner at the time, now wife, said, you know, you might find some real challenging enrichment from a very different type of graduate teaching experience. Mm. She had in that last year taught in the program for intergroup relations at Michigan. And so she said, you know, I'll be honest, when she talked about her experiences throughout that year, I thought that is not for me. You know, that is emotionally draining work, work that seems ill, not ill-defined, but it seems so kind of free of some of the traditional boundaries of teaching that certainly that could be freeing, but it could also be scary, right? Mm, Someone who does prefer more, order and predictability, which I'm tending to, to you know, value. Um, but there is something when she gave me that push to just apply and see that I thought, well, you know, what's the harm? Maybe having a bit of teaching experience outside of the department can maybe recharge the batteries a bit, especially as I'm in a place where as that fellowship was running out, I'm potentially questioning my ties or my belonging within the department. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was a bit of a risk on my part in seeking out that non-conventional teaching opportunity, but it's one that paid some really big dividends for me. And I think it continues to shape my approach to teaching as a professor and even my scholarship as well. How long have you been at UCI and how did you make your way here from graduate school? So I have been at UCI since 2014, uh, teaching here for six years now. It goes by so quickly. Um, And the opening for a political science position, faculty position at UCI came, you know, the academic job market kind of has a couple of cycles to it. Uh, The first cycle of jobs opens up around August, And then there's maybe additional cycles that open up maybe around October, uh, November possibly. So I think UCI was in that second cycle and I applied here uh, basically on the sense that 
it was a job looking specifically for someone that could teach and research in black politics. And so, you know, any academic job that year that had that specific need, I certainly was attracted towards because that's my particular area or focus. Mm -hmm. I remember distinctly uh, getting word that you said I wanted to fly me out for an interview while I was uh, visiting some cousins in Georgia alongside my mom during Thanksgiving break. So I kind of returned to Ann Arbor, Michigan uh, from Thanksgiving thinking, okay, got to gear up, get ready to fly out to Irvine, wherever that is for this interview. (laughs) And so, you know, I didn't know much about UC Irvine. I didn't know much about Orange County at all. And as I'm in the taxi to the airport, getting ready to make the trip out there, I thought, well, at the very least, I'm flying out to Irvine, California in early December, which is just dreadful in Ann Arbor. So at the very least, I get a hugely nice change of pace weather-wise, especially since Michigan had been in the midst of the first ever polar vortex that I experienced, which just when I thought I knew what cold was, we're talking wind chills that are 30 degrees below zero, just incredible, incredible misery. And to be walking a small dog out there three times a day, just, well, anyway, so I You know, it was, was pretty cold last about, night here. <laughs> you know, I think it was in the 60s last night here. <laughs> yeah, it's striking, actually, to know how many years we moved we are from Ann Arbor and how, yeah, this little cold switch we've had feels cold. When I would have thought, a few years back, this would have been warm to us. Right. But, um, I actually had a tinge of excitement when it dawned on me, and I think I was just literally looking at the map, that Irvine was pretty much the area covered in the cult classic comedy show Arrested Development. So that was the most kind of connectedness I had to this area, my love for the show that followed this family in Newport Beach, California. In fact, one of the young people on that show would end up going to UC Irvine. So, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of go, you roll the dice whenever you get this opportunity to an interview. And there were a couple of people on the faculty whose work I was very familiar with and who I looked up to, Louis Scipio and Claire Jean Kim. And so it was actually very exciting to meet them in person and let them know, you know, I am a fan of your work. And at that time, right, I'm not even necessarily thinking about potentially joining them as colleagues. I'm just thinking about putting my best foot forward, making sure I'm not tripping over my words or tripping over myself to give a favorable impression and thinking about whether it's at UCI or somewhere else, potentially, what the academic life looks like on the other side, right? After engaging this life as a grad student for many, many years, what changes when you're engaging this world as a faculty member? So the experience was, I think, a very positive one. I think there was a strong, favorable response to the research I was presenting, and I think I had enough good vibes, you know, good indicators, good reads of the type of folks in the department and the type of work being valued in the department. And it certainly never hurts to visit this area really any time of year, you know, it really um, is quite something to behold from Mm. the mountain vistas to that cool ocean breeze, right, to those gorgeous sunsets where you get the amazing oranges and the purple hues and streaks in the sky. So I think similar to when I first visited Michigan as a prospective grad student and just kind of felt a sense of belongingness in Ann Arbor, you know, I just felt a good sense 
about what Irvine could bring. And so I was very excited when they let me know that they had mutual feelings for me and was glad to be able to work things out to be able to join the faculty that ensuing summer. Well said. Thank you. Did you know about the 1619 project before it hit the New York Times? So I remember, I think, just kind of following Nicole Hannah-Jones from afar, mm. some of the, you know, excitement emanating from her about this project. And I was very enthused about it before it came out when I was kind of seeing the seedlings of it uh, yeah. developed. I think in no small part that where I was born in Virginia, Hampton is essentially the site of Jamestown, which is the oldest continuous colony. And so a project tracing the origins of the American state to 1619 project is essentially going through Jamestown, uh, which is a place I call home. So I think that was just a almost anecdotal personal connection to the project. Right. So I actually only found out about the 1619 Project probably like maybe six months ago. I started hearing about people's reactions, especially negative reactions to it. And I was like, well, what is this? Why are people reacting so negatively? I need to find out about this. And lo and behold, it came out a year ago. And so you're telling me a new side of it, that there actually was a lead up to it. There was a certain amount of press and so forth leading up to it. A little bit. I think just like um, following some of the key players on mm-hmm. Twitter, right? Even before I had an active account mm-hmm. and kind of seeing them, you know, share some of the vision for what this project was and getting a sense that, oh, this isn't just going to be like a small set of essays. This is a really wide ranging set of right. essays and research pieces and podcasts that's yeah. going to be quite all encompassing, right? And not just kind of walking through histories and walking through narratives about the period of enslavement in the U.S., but also thinking about the myriad ways in which this afterlife continues to shape us, right? From our politics to policy areas to culture. And I think that's what's really exciting for me, just how many people had a chance to share the ways in which this critical, critical moment in history shapes so much of what we know about America even today. Right. When you read it, when you saw it, did you see it right away or did you see it the day it came out? You know, how was it for you? Pretty early on, you know, I wanted to, as I do with anything, really kind of pace my consumption of it. I tend to, I don't know, be outside of the zeitgeist where I don't feel any kind of compulsion to consume something as soon as it comes out, right? And that goes for significant monumental kind of collections of essays and artifacts like this to, you know, kind of movies and music. I like to take my time. Mm. And so I'm ready to like uh, share opinions on this long after people have stopped talking about it. But um, I just kind of dipped my toes into like the opening essay and a couple of the podcasts here and thought, you know, what ways can I maybe directly and indirectly use some of this in my classes and in my teaching. But of course, I would also learn plenty myself, right? Because I think much of the project is helping us have a language for unlearning a lot of the things that we learn in a traditional K-12 program that has a very incomplete story, and oftentimes not just an incomplete story, but a very ideologically slanted story. I remember distinctly reading in textbooks 
about uh, George Washington owning slaves, but the textbook makes a point to say, but he didn't really like it. He wasn't really comfortable. <laughs> and I remember even as a child, right, like kind of having a reaction to that piece and thinking, wow, you're doing some work here, right? To try yeah. to, I don't know, blunt the impact or minimize the impact of this reference to slavery. So I think it's really, it's jarring and unnerving and empowering and freeing to see this wide ranging attempt to provide, you know, for lack of a better word, a no holds barred sense of just the centrality of slavery to every notion we have about kind of the American state, American democracy, but also it's kind of foundational importance to the creation of our politics, creation of our institutions, it's foundational importance to the creation of our cultural spaces, right? And the kind of contributions that we think of as distinctly American, particularly in music, right? It's kind of foundational to think about the current raging debates we have about core questions of redistribution, whether it's resources for education, both K through 12 and higher education or healthcare, right? All of these have clear origins that we can trace back to this era of enslavement, an era that so many of us learned so little about unless we seek that information actively outside of our traditional schooling practices. Yeah. Is this the brainchild of Nicole Hannah-Jones? Did it literally come from her or did you see, could you see this thought process leading up to her or was it literally just an original idea from her? So my understanding, and take this with a grain of salt, because I yeah. might not have the fullest picture, but my understanding that this is something that has originated with her and that she is the ultimate starting point for this. And she, think, very keenly and astutely recruited early on a wide range of you know scholars in various fields and historians to tackle these areas that she didn't have full expertise in. But my understanding is that this is her vision and that as she continued to track in the areas that she worked in as a journalist, especially um, thinking about the exploration she did of education and the kind of ways in which our education system continues to be segregated and stratified along race lines, which has really clear kind of consequences, not just for students in predominantly minority schools that are under-resourced, but also children of color born to middle-class parents that navigate these tensions, right? Well, what kind of school are we going to place them in? Do we have an ability um, due to our potential resources in the neighborhoods in which we live to send them to the more resource schools? But what is the trade-off of giving them access to you know, the higher resource educational facilities versus giving them schools that have more people as students and as teachers and administrators that look like them and have similar experiences to what they have. And so I feel as though she, my understanding is that she was kind of digging deeper into some of the things she wanted to explore, building up on that really well-received penetrative investigative work that I think she came away with this really undeniable need to explore how these and many other current issues, right, are really traced to slavery. And not just the issues, but really the way in which we think about ourselves as Americans and the narratives that we continue to advance 
narratives that tell the story of what America is and what it can be. How if we make the origin point of America 1619 and not 1776, how does that give much needed fuller context? Mm. Knowing to have an understanding of how we can maybe unpack or interrogate those narratives and beliefs, but also to understand by looking at the actual context in which those narratives and beliefs were first being articulated, right? How you can't divorce those narratives and beliefs from the realities, right? Of a set of people that are trying to create a new form of governance uh, that also own other people and are relying on chattel slavery to create wealth and even to create the kind of polity that would create that new form of governance. And so I think she had this vision of how to better explore both kind of grounded, practical debates and issues, but also to have kind of a you know broader bird's eye view of the ideas Right, and the theory is at the heart of American discourse and debate from the beginning. And I think that's a large part why the project has engendered such a strong and visceral opposition from many corners, because she tapped into right these very critical ideological battles over what America means. And I think she really helps us to divorce ourselves from the idea that scholarship and history is neutral, right? That even the people that are the vanguards that give us the vision of how to create theoretical frameworks that help us make sense of our past, our present, and our future, right? We are all doing that under the guise of these fundamental values and beliefs and experiences that are limited. And when I think someone exposes those limits, we can see a lot of defensiveness. We can see a lot of pushback to that. So I think the 1619 project is really meaningful, not just as a contribution, but as a living document. And I think as people continue to respond to it, I think we continue to see some of these ideological and identity fault lines that need to be uncovered, be better revealed. Mm, Yes. Excuse me again, Professor. If you're just joining us, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest is UCI political science professor Davin Phoenix. And we're exploring the 1619 Project, which was a New York Times special magazine section in the Sunday, August 2019. It, it uh, continues to get a lot of notoriety and discussion. Do you have any issues with any of the areas of discussion? I found the piece to, boy, the the way it turned history on its head was just very engaging, but there was such truth to it. For me, it was undeniable, and I had to, I have to look at this more. And, and, And I thought it was powerfully unsanitized. Like, it just seemed like much more closer to the truth than so often these issues in history books are just kind of polite ways of putting it into a chapter and then moving on. Right. Yeah. And I think that point resonates with me as well. And my response to the project, 
how kind of unapologetic and unflinching it was. I think it's really valuable for us to see uh, kind of an analytical work of this type, analytical and also editorial work that is very intentionally written in that kind of voice, right? I think written in, well, not to repeat myself, but yeah, I can't think of better words than kind of unflinching. Written in a voice that has a clear intentionality mm-hmm. and is looking to not simply contribute to an ongoing debate or discussion, but to fundamentally reframe the terms of that ongoing discussion. And so when I see some of the criticisms that I think use perhaps hyperbolic language to indicate that this is maybe a threatening Mm. or disruptive document, I think, well, I think that's largely the intent of it, right? To disrupt Mm. or really shake up these kind of Mm. conventional ways of thinking about American history, thinking about the ways in which that history informs our present. Mm and guides our future. Um, So, you know, I have my expertise in a particular domain and much of what I encountered in the 1619 project is stuff I might have been, you know, somewhat familiar with, but certainly didn't have deep dives into these issue areas. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, it was very much a learning experience to think about the connective tissue from some of these kinds of historical markers and errors that I'm more familiar with and think through how these have indeed been shaped. So I think the one thing that stands out for me is Jamel Bowie's essay on anti-majoritarian practices that were really starting to proliferate during the Obama era and how we can see the connectedness of those anti-majoritarian practices to efforts at the founding of the U.S., to ensure minority rule or minority obstinance primarily as a means of preserving the institution of slavery. And so it's not just thinking about the kind of ethereal legacies of slavery and the actions that preserved it, but actually how it establishes a blueprint that continues to be followed by people looking to somehow subvert majority rule or majority opinion. And so, of course, that kind of idea discourse is particularly resonant right now, right, as we face the latest set of constitutional crises or potential crises that come from people refusing to accept what is, by any metric, a credible and unequivocal election result and trying to cast aspersions on that. It's not just kind of rhetorical campaigns, right, but we're seeing mechanisms of the law, whether it is the Wayne County election officials that are refusing to certify or going back and forth on their willingness to certify, or these lawsuits brought about against um, vote counts in these battleground states, right? These kinds of practices and mechanisms have actual antecedents in similar practices and mechanisms enacted for the very purposes that they're serving here, right? Which is to be able to subvert majority opinion, majority will, to uphold the desires of a minority that in varying points of history is in line with or out of step with how other people want to proceed. And so I think in that way, we can see this as a living document at the same time that we see, you know, some constructive and maybe some not so constructive debates about some of the claims made, maybe not in terms of 
historical readings, but in the significance of those historical readings. One of the big points from the articles are that I think 10 of the first 12 presidents had slaves and Jefferson writing about unalienable rights of freedom, happiness, and so forth. And yet at the same time, he owned slaves. And, you know, of course, it seems like there was always that that little asterisk. Well, they didn't really like owning slaves, but certainly the 1619 Project really brought it in your face. Like, look, <laughs> this wasn't fun and games. You know, this was a savage situation. You know, life and death and torture. And it was it was not Disneyland, which, I don't know, sometimes that... It, it seems like when we're talking about this this amazing democracy that history likes to be presented and yet dichotomy of what it really was i uh, i'm i'm still struggling with it i think yeah and i think that is a real value right of this project in that by providing that unflinching account it can force us to struggle in ways that hopefully make us better, right? As a collective, as a nation. It's so important for us to be able to view the founding fathers and the people that were the vanguards of the American Democratic Republic, not as these unassailable deities, but as these people that had these fundamental tensions and contradictions and evils that they themselves sought to rationalize and justify. It's really critical for us to understand the tensions that go into the writing in the Declaration of Independence that we have an unalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And to think about what that means, I tried with my students earlier this quarter to break that down, right? What's unalienable essentially mean, right? It means that these rights are given to us by God and not by man. And so if they're given to us by God and not by man, then man can't abridge or take away those rights. That's like a fundamentally different relationship, right? Between the person and the state to say that you are born with these rights, with these ability to kind of have self-actualization and you are not at the mercy of the state, specifically, you know, the king or the crown. Mm. So it's really fundamentally important that we grapple with how revolutionary and how radical this idea is at the time that it's coming and how much it doesn't comport with the reality, right? And that the same people writing this own other people. And so you have to think about the internal tension there and how the rationalization of these founding fathers that can author these documents that are the blueprint for American democracy while systematically working to maintain a system that is the exact opposite of that democracy how they're rationalizing themselves out of that inconsistency and out of that discrepancy. Because a lot of those narratives that they used to rationalize, well, we described man here, slave is not man, black people are not human, right? They do not possess the capacity to be governed. They do not possess the acumen or the work ethic to be counted worthy of these rights. It's important for us to be able to acknowledge that that was the kind of compromise being made for these founding fathers because we still see those narratives play a really significant part in our politics today right we still see much of the politics around african americans be shaped by these fundamental unwavering beliefs 
that racial discrepancies are not a product of continued systematic discrimination, but rather black people not working hard enough or not taking full advantage of the opportunities available to them. And so this is another way in which it's important for us to understand the afterlife of slavery, that these kind of fundamental constructions in the mind of people that wanted to advance liberty, but also preserve slavery, created a construction of black people that is still very much tugging at the politics of African-Americans today. And so, yeah, I think it's just so fundamentally important for us to be willing to be rattled and unnerved and uncomfortable by the core ideas and premises at the heart of the 1619 Project. Even as people may rise to critique or challenge or offer alternate accounts of the role of slavery, to treat it as a thing that indisputably matters is really important. And even that itself, I think, is such a radical departure from how many of us are taught American politics. And so for of us to have a true understanding of what is at stake right now in our politics, the tensions of these erosions of democratic norms coming at a time in which the general public and the electorate is more racially diverse than ever, these are not disconnected points. And so we have to continue to grapple with the inability of this country, even as it's become even more racially and ethnically diverse, to kind of untether itself from the inconsistencies that were laid to bear at its founding. How do you create liberty for all on a system that was only intended to preserve liberty for some? Just excuse me one more time, Professor. If you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations, and my guest is UCI Professor of Political Science, Davin Phoenix, and his research frequently looks at race, and in December of 2019, his latest book was published, The Anger Gap, How Race Shapes Emotions in Politics. Does your book, does it deal with the same kinds of issues from the 1619 Project, Professor, or is, is it different? So there's some resonance, I think particularly on my last point about the ways in which Black people in America have been constructed. So the central premise of the book is that Black people have been constructed in such a way that when they show anger about politics, that anger is demonized or delegitimized or villainized, Mm. so much so that I find consistently that African-Americans express much less anger than their white counterparts over political phenomena, and that while anger is very forceful for mobilizing white Americans to take on a variety of political actions, it is not nearly as motivating for African-Americans in terms of political participation. The one exception to that rule being, I find that when African-Americans do express anger, it translates most observably to protests, demonstrations, marches, those kinds of actions that are outside of the system. And so I think there's a resonance there, right? Because if you can't show your anger over politics, it's really hard for you to kind of make claims to what you're entitled from politics. So much of our politics is animated by grievance, right? We wanna vote these bums out of office and put in this regime because these bums have failed us, right? Mm -hmm. We don't want to abide by this policy anymore. 
because it's, it's just, it angers us, right? How this policy fails us. So we're going to advocate and agitate for a new type of policy, right? So if so much of our politics is motivated by this idea of pluralism, that it is groups competing for limited resources and making their claim to why they deserve these resources or a better bite of the apple than others, then it really distorts the playing field if not all groups get to make that claim as forcefully because some groups get penalized for that anger while other groups get acknowledged for that anger. So I think in that ways, I am also grappling with these kind of fundamental notions of how black people are perceived and how those perceptions, you know, have their origins in a time when they were created to systematically kind of justify the denial of black people from the full rights of citizenship. Mm, Interesting. Just in preparing for this interview, I, watched a, a YouTube of two black writers, Coleman Hughes and Tanasi Coates, and they were kind of the opposite of what you're talking about. Right? It was congressional testimony, and I was like blown away at how powerfully not angry they, well, I mean, maybe underlying there was anger, but they were very logical, passionate, even tempered it seemed like and i i thought very persuasive and they were talking they were on the opposite ends of the spectrum uh, i know you must be familiar with their both their works is it, um any any observations about them uh yes so having some familiarity with both of them i think that the kind of cool calm collective demeanor that permeates so much of their public facing commentary is very intentional and performed out of a need for just what my book is arguing, right? Not to say everything is proving my book right, but I think that very intentional performance of cool, calm, collected demeanor speaks to that argument I'm making that they would not be met with anywhere near the same response if they showed anger, right? If they were more expressive because the minute they deign to show anger or aggression, right? They become painted in an altogether different light and they now become linked inextricably to longstanding narratives that say black people are prone to violence and criminality. Mm. So I think whenever we see black people uh, in public spaces, we have to consider those boundaries. Uh, One thing I note in the book that I think is very resonant with the uh, example you raise here is that long-running sketch from the show Key and Peele, wherein Barack Obama has an anger translator, right? He can't show his true emotions, so he outsources that to his assistant, Luther. And what is the kind of underlying observation made by that long-running sketch on that popular show that even occupying the highest office in the land, Barack Obama, by virtue of being a Black individual, cannot actually kind of move outside of those bounds prescribed for him. That if you show your anger about this, you are going to lose all credibility. So even though Coates and, oh, what's the other person's name? Coleman Hughes, Hughes. That's right, Hughes, that's right. Even though Coates and Hughes are quite far apart on the ideological spectrum, I think you see a common tie there and that both of them see, I think, very clear utility to projecting that kind of persona. Mm. And I certainly can relate to that as well, thinking about the degree to which I can or must or need to project that persona in my own public-based conversations. 
Interesting is, you know, do you see anything in this? I, I will say when I listened to those two gentlemen and to me, they, they powerfully spoke to me and, and I, and I have to reflect on what they said and, and digest it. I'll listen to them a hundred times before I'll listen to an angry politician who at this point is sitting in the oval office. <laughs> um, sure. You know, the, I, I don't know. I guess that's just who I am. I, um, I guess there's just a play. There's a time and a place, right? I mean, certainly if, uh, it did, there's a time and a place, I guess that's what it is. Oh, absolutely. Right. We can certainly think about the context in which anger seems more or less appropriate and who has more maybe credible, legitimate grounds to say, right. I'm mad as heck. I'm not going to take it anymore. Right. Uh, we can also think about the boy who cried wolf. Right. So, so right. you know, the anger emanating from the white house, I think to many, many, many Americans reads it's very not credible and illegible, uh, in part because of how much anger has emanated from that White House over all of these alleged slights that maybe don't seem to materialize. So we can certainly think about also how the kind of unrelenting rancor that characterizes our politics uh, for the past few years has had the effect of tuning a lot of people out, right? And I think many people welcome some return to normalcy but I do want to acknowledge people that think that the return to normalcy is also unsatisfying because the normalcy was also kind of demobilizing or disenfranchising or constraining for a lot of people who aren't given equal representation, either in our political discursive spaces or in our halls of power. You know, on a lighter note, that since we're, uh, we're coming to the end of our time, so now you, you've been teaching, what, six or seven years now? About um, Yes, I think this is seven for me. Have you had any remarkably funny, you, you know, uh, any re funny moments in your, in your teaching career so far that it's just like, I never saw that coming, or I don't know. You, you completely forgot what you were going to talk about, or anything comes to mind? Uh, you know, one immediate moment comes to <laughs> mind. I was in, I think I was teaching my media and politics course, and I was showing examples of campaign ads to try to help the students unpack kind of what emotions were looking to be invoked. And so this was kind of the immediate aftermath of the 2016 primary. I showed a Marco Rubio ad from his 2016 presidential race where he's like very solemn and he's talking about the threat of uh, radical Islamic terrorism, right? So already we're kind of engaging head on some of these kind of stereotypical tropes, right? Constituting Muslim Americans as a threat. And so it wasn't until the ad kept playing that I didn't realize when I identified it, I don't think I'd ever listened to the, to the end. It's not a long ad, right? But I think I got the gist of it. Yeah. Selected the next example. So I'm hearing in real time as the class is what he says. And he says at one point, you know, they hate us because let women drive and we do blah, blah, blah. And, both myself and a number of students in the class had the same visceral reaction at the same time. Like, wait, what? Let women drive. It was just such a startling thing that you never expect to hear politicians say. We understood the context for it. But so, you know, as like being up in the classroom, they're kind of looking to me for their, my, their cue, like, 
can we laugh at this? And because it hit me like a ton of bricks, I am suddenly kind of flush and thinking, oh boy, wow, how do I react in this moment? And I kind of just made eye contact, I felt like, with almost everyone collectively. And we almost immediately started laughing so hard. Tears started streaming down my eyes. And I had to like double over in pain. My stomach was hurting so much. And I had to like shut down the laptop. And we had like a really good, hearty, cathartic laugh. And I just said, well, I don't think I've heard that all the way to the end. And we tried to recover and move on. So I think that really sticks out. It was just kind of this instantaneous shared moment where we both knew in that moment kind of that we were not going to be able to recover from this work. And there was like that pause before we just exploded in laughter. Right. Was it a moment of like, can you believe what you just said? Is it, was it like that, you mean? Or, or? It was, yeah, almost to a T that, yeah. right? Yeah. Where it's like... I, and I know the students looked at me thinking, wow, did he really say that? Yeah, yeah, but they're also yeah. reading my face and my face in real time is saying, wow, <laughs> did he really say that? And yeah. so they're seeing the surprise on my face, which they didn't expect since I'm the one that queued up the video. Right, and I'm acknowledging, right. wow, that one threw me for a loop too. And so, yeah, we just kind of lost it. And, you know, I, I honestly cannot do it justice. If anyone's listening is curious about the ad, you can easily find it on YouTube. You just look up Rubio civilizational struggle because it's one of those campaign ads with a name and he's so somber and it's this really deep dark black background and his voice almost cracks as he says it which just adds right to uh, like the, the performed surrealness of it and so yeah we just lost it excellent how about uh, heroes do you have any political scientist heroes or anybody that you particularly like to read wow yeah great question so I think starting at home, I've got a, a, a real affinity and admiration for some of the folks that trained me at Michigan or came out of that Michigan tradition. So mm. my two co-chairs have been so influential in terms of the work that they produce, which I think is so cutting edge, thinking about racial attitudes and how they persist and also kind of the role of emotions in politics. So Vince Hutchings and Ted Brader, uh, other people that whose work I just greatly admire, whether they're more contemporaries or more people that you know really predate me that I came up reading include Someone I mentioned, right? My colleague here at UCI, Claire Kim. Some of her writings were so instrumental for me going back to my undergrad days. So it's really kind of surreal to work alongside her here. Also, Michael Dawson, who's written a number of books that really explore black politics and black ideologies in ways that are really meaningful. Uh, people that are more contemporaries, Jamila Mishner does fantastic work on the intersection of race and public policy. Megan McFrancis does incredible work thinking about how we can't really grapple with history and the history of American institutions without thinking about how that history was shaped by race. Those are some immediate names that come to mind. Uh, Nazita Lajabardi at Michigan State it does incredible work. She's got a PhD and a JD, and so she can take a lot of different angles, but she's so prolific thinking specifically about the politics of Muslim Americans and kind of really identifying ways to think through the politics of this, like ignored group. Yeah, this is the kind of question I struggle with, right? There's some people I want to name, and I'm blanking, but those are a handful of names of people whose work I've been admiring for a while now. Well, wow, what what a great way to wind it up, Professor, just acknowledging your influences. Thank you so much, UCI political scientist, Professor Davin Phoenix, for going through the 1619 Project and also updating us with some of the, the work that you've been doing. Thank you very much, Professor. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you again to UCI political science professor Davin Phoenix 
for all his remarkable insights into the 1619 Project and his expertise on anger and race. His personal stories into the challenges of a Ph.D. candidate were very candid and appreciated. His description of the 1619 Project as jarring, unnerving, empowering, and freeing to see this wide-ranging attempt at no-hold-barred foundational importance were on point. Looking at the black contributions to the USA as something to be proud of and not as victim is profound, and I applaud it. If you have not read the New York Times Sunday Magazine from August 18, 2019, commemorating the 400th anniversary of the first ship to deliver slaves to the Virginia coastline before there even was a United States, simply Google it, New York Times 1619 Project, and check it out. And now turning the page, coming up next at 5 p.m. on KUCI is Entrepreneur Nation with Ash Kumra, where every week Ash and his guests look at ways to overcome real business problems. Stay tuned. As always, thank you to blues pianist extraordinaire Fred Kaplan for supplying my show theme music from his great CD, Signifying. I highly recommend it. And don't forget, you can always reach me at my station email, kboss at kuci.org. And all my UCI Conversation shows can be accessed 24-7 at www.bossenmeyer.com. If you are new to the show, UCI Conversations is a weekly public affairs show where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, imploring you to stay safe, socially distance, wear a mask, and do not travel for the month of December. COVID-19 is spiking, and we need to keep our guard way up. Do your part to keep those trails happy. So long, everybody.